Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community. Wow, it's another Sunday edition. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much for all of the feedback. Today, we have a Peter, a Paul, instead of Mary. (laughs) That's the theme for the show today. I'm joined by Peter Alchel in the second segment in the spotlight. I have Jim Crott talking about voting and census later on in Happenings. And this morning, I am very proud to have Paul Edwards, former ACB president and the host of Tuesday Topics, But before we start chatting with Paul, I'd like to introduce Byron Lee, who is our engineer and streamer extraordinaire. Hi, Holder. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm not Kermit the Frog. Hey, everybody. How you doing? (laughs) Tell them them a little bit about yourself and your show this evening. Well, um, I am. I've been hanging out with ACB for a long time. Uh, been to several conventions. I think my first, first, first one was the one in Vegas. I believe that was in 2005. And I, I have a very fond memory of the air conditioner breaking down in Quartzsite, Arizona, on the way back from the convention. And we spent a hot afternoon <laughs> in Quartzsite just baking in the RV. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, yeah, I do a radio show on the internet. Uh, it used to be on ACB Radio interactive and mainstream uh quite a while ago i did a, a comedy show and i still do it elsewhere and uh if you want to check it out my website is byronlee.com b-y-r-o-n-l-e-e.com and uh the show airs on sunday nights at 7 p.m central until 9 p.m central so if you like dr demento and weird al and all that stuff you guys should check it out yeah, give byron a listen send him some great feedback and thank him for being a sound engineer extraordinaire for Sunday edition. I also have Caleb in the background. He is our IRA agent partner who will be directing any call-ins. And if you'd like to call in to ask a question or make a comment to any of the guests, you can find the Zoom information on my Facebook page. I'm Anthony Corona, and it's on the leadership and radio lists. So let's dive right into movers and shakers with Paul Edwards. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I know that you are no stranger to ACB radio listeners, to ACB members, but can you give us a brief history of how you got to ACB and maybe how you became president? Um, well, um, I think becoming president was a fluke. Um, <laughs> um I came, I came to ACB um, from FCB, really. I, I was involved with FCB for about seven years before I became involved in 
in ACB. I've, I have been to every ACB convention since 1984, however, which is a fair number. And the, I guess I, I, I worked at the state level for seven years before I, I went to ACB. And, and what initially decided me to go to ACB was an invitation from Grant Mack, who was then the president of the American Council of the Blind, um, to come and chair the resolutions committee for ACB. I had no idea when, when I agreed to come what chairing the resolutions committee involved. Um, and so I'm sure for the first few years was not exactly a great chair. Uh, I know I made as many people mad at me, uh, but, but I also had loads of people who listened to resolutions who really liked the way I did them because I tried to do them with a good deal of, of, of humor. Um, but I think I was pretty non-traditional in the way I did resolutions. So, uh, I'm not sure I became very popular. Um, and then I ended up as uh, not doing my apprenticeship on the board of ACB. I, I became first vice president of ACB in 1987, I think. Um, and, and that was the, the biggest flute because there were actually five people running for the office and nobody was more surprised than I was that I won because I thought I was this new kid on the block and that any of the other four candidates would be likely to win. And then uh, kind of by succession, I guess, uh, I ended up as, uh, as president of, of, of ACB and served for six years. Um, and that was, that was a fun time. What are some of the most memorable moments of those six years? During my presidency, we started um, ACB Radio, and uh, we started an organization that you may know something about, Anthony, called B-Flag. Yes. Um, and so um, those, those were two things. Uh, we, we got into a huge fight uh, with uh, Rehabilitative Services Administration uh, because uh, they were at the time uh, interested in in changing the way that uh, work that was being done by NIB was valued um, in terms of being able to get appropriate closures, and they were trying. They were trying and did set very um, obnoxious uh, limits in terms of what they were doing. Uh, we spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time during that presidency trying to define ACB both for us and for people outside of our organization. Uh, I was excited by the fact that Charlie Crawford became our executive director. Uh, he had been the commissioner, the executive director of the Commission for the Blind up in Massachusetts. And he took a huge pay cut to come and work for ACB. Uh, but I think he brought a lot to us. And uh, we, this, this was also uh, the, the time that we implemented AC's, ACB's first um, action plan, if you like, 
my predecessor uh, had worked to develop it. And then when, when his six years ran out, his name was Leroy Saunders, he essentially said, well, uh, I've implemented the plan. So sorry, I've, I've made the plan. Now you get to implement good luck. <laughs> and, and, and I needed it because a lot of the things that were in the plan were pretty controversial for the time, like giving more power to the national office, creating, uh, creating a, an environment where we tried to define the differences between state affiliates and special in, uh, interest affiliates and to create maybe a, a greater degree of balance there. So uh, those are some of the things that we were working on when I was president. You mentioned ACB Radio. I did not know that you were basically the granddaddy of ACB Radio. How did that all come about? Uh, I went um, to, uh, well, I became familiar with uh, Jonathan Mosen and his main menu program and, and also other things he was doing with internet radio. It was, it was of course, in its infancy then. And during my presidency, I went to New Zealand and met with Jonathan, and he had recently um, decided to leave the job that he had. So we were fortunate that he was in between. So I was actually able to come back to the States, uh, meet with our board, and persuade them that ACB Radio was a good thing and that hiring Jonathan Mosen to run ACB Radio was an even better thing. And so ACB Radio was was born during my presidency, and in, and in many respects, it's it's the proudest accomplishment because ACB went from being what was really a, a pretty American organization to being the only organization of blind people that truly, at that point, had an international presence, and and we were we were the voice of blindness throughout the world, and and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment, and thank thank you for that, or else we wouldn't be here on Sunday edition, nor would you have Tuesday Topics. But this is we'll, true. Get to, we'll get to Tuesday Topics in a little while. I definitely, one thing that you did in, during your presidency, which I am extremely grateful for, is you advocated and helped what was once B-Flag, which is now BPI. This is Pride Month, of course, so we've been celebrating all month. You generously gave some of your time to our Pride Connection show two weeks ago. But for the more mainstream audience, can you tell us a little bit about when B Flag, when the people who became B Flag came to your attention and wanted to become a special interest affiliate? Sure. Um, a lot of my contact, at least initially, was with Mr. Hill from Oklahoma, who, who is, is an amazingly gentle and kind and persuasive person. And, and I think we started talking in 1996 or 1997. And it was indicated that there was, there, there was an interest of, uh, in becoming a special interest affiliate. Um, uh, for a, a, a group of folks who were LGBT. I'm not sure it was called that then, but it, what I said to them is you have to convince me and you'll have to convince the ACB board. 
that not only are you a group of people who have a, a have special characteristics, but that that ACB can do things for you and that you will integrate into the, the parent organization. And so we, we had lots of discussions. I was glad to help. I, I, I actually um, worked with them in developing their constitution and, and worked with them to try to, to make sure that the presentation they made to the ACB board was was a presentation that would that would sell B flag and it did, um, and and so uh, another proud thing for me is is that we got a group of folks who who genuinely at that point uh, were a, a hidden group of folks for the most part, and and at a time when um, when being gay was not nearly as accepted as it is now uh and and many of the folks before b flag i think felt uncomfortable about acknowledging who they were and what their sexual orientation was and one of the things that's exciting for me i think is we've gotten lots of new members in acb who came to acb because it was a place where they felt safe being who they really were and that's exciting yeah, you know, I, I was very, very young at that point, and I had eyesight, so I didn't know anything about B flag, but I do know what the climate was like in the world at that point. Gay marriage wasn't even it wasn't even a breath on you know in anyone's in anyone's scope, and you still it was okay to come out, but it was still it was still a dicey kind of proposition to really be loud and proud about who you were. So I wonder, you know, when you were tasked with helping them to to organize and helping them to to become the organization that they eventually be- we eventually became, did you have second thought? No, um, I never did. Uh, I, the organization certainly did. No. Um, you know, there there were people in the organization who were extremely opposed to us recognizing a gay organization and who perceived uh, what we were doing as a sin and who regarded me as the devil incarnate for taking the lead, I think, in, in trying to make it happen. Um, I, I, but I, I, had, I, I have no regrets. I particularly don't have any regrets now because I think BPI has become a much stronger organization over the past two or three years uh, than it ever was before. And, and that's all to the good. Well, thank you for that. I, you know, and, and a larger and, and most gracious thank you for champion, championing B-Flag, which became BPI all those years ago. So I want to switch topics a little bit. And obviously the, the climate of the world's recently has taken a nosedive, you could say, um, in a, another um, marginalized community is really taking the stand, taking the, the standpoint that they no longer want to be considered, they no longer want to. Do you think anything in ACB that we can do to stand up with them or to invite them more into our family? 
I think that I think that the American Council of the Blind is uh, is is an organization that has always been open to folks from minority groups. Um, I, I I'm disappointed, really, with four things uh, with with ACB. First, I don't think we actively go out and and seek members of minority groups as much as we could or should. I think that I think part of the reason there aren't more minority folks in in ACB uh, is that a lot of them are are at a place where they're not interested in joining organizations where they can't afford to join organizations because of their poverty and where they where where they where they by and large have determined um, that there there isn't a way forward for them if you look at the rehabilitation statistics oh. what it suggests is that is that folks who are black are about twice as likely to have their cases closed non-positively than our white folks uh nationwide they're 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 about twice as likely um to be unsuccessful at finding jobs and and they're about twice as likely to be on SSI. And all three of these things mean that there is clearly a difference in in terms of the likelihood of success that's out there for folks who are blind and black as well. So the first thing that I think ACB has to do is is to really put put those facts out there for people to recognize. And second, I think we do have to recruit more. Third, I think once we've recruited folks who are black, we need to try to find some affirmative ways of, of encouraging them uh, to take more leadership roles. If you, if you look at the boards of directors of most state and special interest affiliates, um, there aren't a lot of black folks there. And I don't think it's because they don't have the ability or, or couldn't have the ability. It's that initially they aren't in our organization. And then when they are, they don't get as many opportunities as they should uh, to, to be promoted into leadership positions. So, um, so, I, so I think we need to, to thirdly do more in terms of, of, of promoting leadership situations. And fourth, I think we need to take some of the rehab statistics that are out there and say to the folks who are working on things like our rehab task force and to our folks um, who are working in our national office, we need to do something to force the Rehabilitation Services Administration and state rehabilitation agencies to recognize what their satisfaction surveys are showing every year, what their plans are showing every year, and what their needs assessments are showing every three years. And that is that a, a significantly underserved and under-successful population are Black folks and Hispanic folks. And, and, and it's time that we developed and pushed specific strategies that change the environment and the approach so that more and more of folks from minority groups are going to be more likely to have success in terms of finding and keeping jobs because when they find and keep jobs then they become 
more open to joining ACB. And then they become as well uh, more confident of themselves and more likely to move towards leadership positions. But if you are imprisoned in a place where you, you are essentially unable to get out of the box that society's put you in, you're not going to be successful at, at getting out of that box and, and moving to new places. Absolutely. Do you, you know, you said boxes and that's something that, that I relate to a lot, especially since I lost my eyesight. Do you think that part of the problem is that they, that there is this general uh, feeling that to get out of their socioeconomic box, to go to rehab services and, and other such services that they're just being put in another box or offered another set of boxes. And so why bother? I, th- I think there's I think there's some of that, but I also think to be fair, um, if I'm going to make people mad, I might as well make everybody mad. Um, to be fair, I also think there is a box that that folks from minority groups are in that essentially says society has substantially discriminated against me right from the beginning. Um, they're, they're really not interested in letting me out of the box. So I don't need to make very much effort. It's okay for me, uh, to not bother to look really hard for work. And it's okay for me to repeatedly go back to the trough and feed at it, um, because the trough is tainted anyway. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I hope it doesn't make too many people mad because I think it's, it's these things that we all as a society, definitely in nonprofit organizations need to start looking at and need to start understanding and recognizing that even though we didn't create the box, you know, we facilitate the box being in effect by not speaking out and not saying enough to break down the walls of those boxes. Yep. I agree with that. Thank you. So tell us about Tuesday Topics. Well, when God was little, um, Tuesday Topics <laughs> uh, was um, being done on, on ACB radio. Um, and, and it was a fun program to do. The way that we did it then was we, we, we used a very ancient and venerable um, system where several people could call into the same kind of internet platform. Um, and what we would do is, is we would, we would do a Tuesday topic um, and then it would be edited and broadcast the next week. Um, and for a variety of reasons, probably nine or 10 years ago, it went away. Um, but we had fun with it. And the idea is to p- pick a particular topic every Tuesday and then uh, either invite a guest or do an open forum. We, we, for instance, did an open forum last week on the pandemic and working at home. And this week, we're going to be doing something on, on ACB's membership efforts with uh, Sydney Hall- Cindy, I'll learn to speak, Hollis Van Winkle. Um, but the idea is to take a particular topic, spend the first part, if I have a guest, talking to that guest, trying to uh, ask both some easy and some hard questions, 
and then invite others to join us in participation uh, and ask questions and, and interact. And so we're now live every Tuesday night at 8 on uh, ACB Radio Mainstream. And then we are um, in the can, as it were, at 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning and at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays. Which is nice. BPI Pride Connection runs at 10 p.m. Tuesday, and then we follow you on Sundays at 7 and 7. So I kind of feel like, you know, we're brothers, radio brothers. We, we are. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a new Floridian, as you know. So now we're also state brothers. We are city brothers. City brothers. That's right. Yeah, we're part of the same local chapter too. And uh, you were one of the one of the first people that I met down here, other than of course Gabe. And uh, you've been a great person to have as a mentor and as a friend. So thank you for that as well. Do you mind if we get a little personal and let the listeners know a little bit about Paul the Man? Not at all. <clears throat> I was born in San Francisco, California, and spent seven years there, uh, and then moved to Canada, Calgary, Alberta, but went to school in Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, then at 13, moved to Jamaica, and at 21, to Trinidad, and um, moved back to the United States when I was 31. Nice. So, um, gosh, um, spent most of my working career uh, working in in disability related work. I worked as a rehabilitation teacher, which is what we called them then for the Division of Blind Services. Before that, I had taught high school for ten years in Trinidad. Um, I um, then went on to be a rehab counselor and then ran an agency for the blind up in Jacksonville. And then for the last, what, 25 or 26 years that I worked, uh, I worked for Miami-Dade College as director of services for students with disabilities at the North Campus. Wow. Well, I did know that, but I'm sure the listeners are, uh, are enjoying that. What brought you to Florida when you came back? to the United States, why Florida? Yeah, uh, it was it was the, the closest place. I had come up the year before I came back and met with the Division of Blind Services and they made all kinds of promises which really didn't get kept. Um but um initially bought a house in, in Miami and was planning to stay here. Uh but then um went up to the rehab center the Division of Blind Services wasn't doing very much good finding me a job, so I found one for myself um, and went to work in Daytona, so moved to Daytona. But Florida was was really just really just the closest place in the United States. I, I, I didn't have any real ties anywhere else, so uh, Florida was a good place, and, and, and Daytona was a nice place to live. I really enjoyed Daytona Beach a lot and made loads of friends there. So if you don't mind, the last year that I've been involved with AC to tell us a little about Gail Cross Edwards and her work. And Gail is a, the, the, the love of my life. We, I, I had gotten divorced from my first wife with whom I had three kids and three wonderful kids. Uh, and, um, 
1985 in Las Vegas, I met Gail and um, we, we carried on a long distance relationship until uh, February of 1986. What we both agreed was uh, in whatever place both of us could find a job, um, we would move. And Gail found a job in Miami. I found a job in Miami. And so Miami it was. Uh, so I essentially moved from Jacksonville, where I'd been before, down to Miami. And, and Gail moved from Ohio down here. Um, she started out working for the Division of Blind Services as a children's counselor. Um, and, and we both did uh, a kind of a part-time job with the Miami Herald where we transcribed Action Line. Um, wow. She be- became a Mary Kay salesman or salesperson. Um, and, and so we, we, we were both working very hard. And by then I was actively involved with very actively involved with, with ACB and with F and with the Florida council. Um, and eventually Gail went to work for Miami Dade County. And, and by the end of her career in, in 2005, she was the assistant director uh, of the Office of ADA Coordination for Miami-Dade County and was making loads more money than I was, which is fine. Um, um, she was um, she was much better behaved than I was. She, she did exercise and went to gyms and went on diets and all, all, all the things that I never did. But unfortunately, in, in 2005, uh, she got leukemia or was diagnosed at at the beginning of February and by the middle of April, she was dead. I'm so sorry. I've, I've heard lovely, lovely things about her. Um, I'm, so, great. I'm a huge Gail Crows fan. <laughs> I wanted to give the listeners an opportunity to hear a little of her story. Cause I'm sure they've, I'm sure many of them have heard of her as well. And um, thank you for sharing that. Sure. I. I have one more interesting question before we have a little fun and open it up for questions. A little birdie told me that at one point, like another one of my guests recently, you considered the priesthood. I did. Um, it, it's it's interesting. Um, I had I had what I guess can only be described as a pretty awful uh, childhood. Both of my parents were alcoholics, and when my mom moved to Jamaica, um, she was um, pretty obnoxious. She, she's a very, very capable person and, and had held down really good jobs. But in Jamaica, she, she didn't work um, and was literally drinking two bottles of liquor a day. Um, all kinds of, of psychological issues um, and, and I, you know, maybe psychiatric issues as well. You know, if she had ever gone for counseling, perhaps she could have been a different person. That never happened. But the bottom line was uh, there was a lot of time during my teenage years when uh, I became um, very depressed. And, and in fact, at one point came uh, within an eyebrow of committing suicide. And I started reading... Um, medieval Thomists and uh, the, the writings of Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and became pretty involved in the Catholic church. 
um, and really applied to become a priest and was told that, uh, that unfortunately, uh, I didn't qualify because God didn't appoint priests who were blind. Um, uh, the church does now, but they didn't then. The, you know, essentially, uh, God's representative at the local level can't be blind because that that means that that God sanctions the folks who are doing His calling uh, to to be imperfect and incompetent. And so, um, what I, I ended up working pretty actively for the church, particularly in Trinidad, um, but. Um, but have sort of fallen away because the, while the Catholic Church is a, is, a, is, is a wonderful entity in lots of respects, and I particularly like the mix of faith and good works that are at the heart of, of what the Catholic Church believes in, I'm much more comfortable with that than I am with the notion of predestination and other things that, 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 that other denominations operate with. Uh, those scare me to death. Um, be, be, because I have no notion of of what the lottery will do in terms of creating a select. But anyway, um, what what stopped me becoming a really active church member is uh, when my first wife uh, asked that our marriage be annulled um, and our, our kids be designated as bastards, and I decided that just wasn't something with which I could be comfortable. Do you do you still have a relationship with the Catholic Church now? Um, if if I were if I were going to go to church, it would probably be to a Catholic Church. But um, I don't I don't have an active relationship with the Catholic Church. I'd like to think I have an active relationship with God, um, and and I'd and I'd like to think that I'm that that most of the time I try to behave um, in in ways that would make him or her happy. <laughs> and I think that's that at the core of of most religious beliefs. If that's if that was highlighted more, we'd have a whole lot less foray and problems in the world. But that's a conversation mm-hmm. for another show. I always do a fast five, a quick random kind of question and answer game. But before sure. I do that, Caleb, do we have anyone who had a question or comment for Paul? Uh, does not look like it. Peter came in, in though, but, but yeah, it looks like no questions. I, I do have something I'd like to throw in if that's okay. Sure. sure. So um, I just wanted to um, just briefly tell you about uh, how I got into BPI and, and thank you for kind of, well, you, so I, I got into ACB radio and BPI, and I guess I have you to thank for both of those things. Um, so I was at the 2016 ACB convention here in Minneapolis, and I wasn't living in Minneapolis yet. I was still living in Chicago, and I I was at a Bits luncheon, and I talked to the right person, and I landed a job here in Minneapolis. But before all that happened, I was at a mixer for BPI, and they had a Dare to Share thing there, and that was when I kind of came out to... um you know, people aside from maybe a close, close friend or somebody who I had an interest in, it was the first time I ever publicly came out at a dare to share event. And 
Now I'm heavily involved with doing stuff for BPI and, and, and helping Anthony with Sunday edition. And so, um, it has kind of helped me rekindle my relationship with ACB and, um, has helped me to come out of the closet as it were. So just wanted to thank you for that and all of the hard work that you've done to help ACB with all of the things that you've sort of helped initiate. Uh, you're, you're more than welcome, Byron. Glad to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you back. Congratulations. It's Pride Month. I, I hope that you are walking with, with a full body of pride, a full heart full of pride. Oh, We're heck so yeah. Very glad, both BPI and ACP Radio, to have you as well. Well, thank you. What are you looking forward to for convention, Paul? <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I, I think the whole idea of a virtual convention is is pretty scary. Um, I, I'm involved in <clears throat> several things. Uh, I'm doing a presentation on the first Saturday uh, on how to access ACB uh, through v- a Victor Reader stream. Um, and then I am in general sessions um, with my friend Christopher Bell from North Carolina. Um, and, and we have 15 minutes to talk about the 30 years of the ADA, which is a virtual impossibility. Um, mm. but, but we will do it. Then uh, I'm actively involved in Library Users of America, and we have four we have four sessions that we're doing. Uh, we're we're doing a session with Karen Kenninger, who is the executive director of the National Library Services, and we're doing a a session that that we we have done several times um, during ACB conventions, which is a session called One Book One ACB, and we are doing a very strange book called Flying Blind, written by a guy called Lou Brigante, B-R-I-G-A-N-T-E. Um, you guys should download it and read it and then join us during that session to talk about it because it is a very odd book written in a very odd way um, and is, in, in my view, very controversial. Now, you notice I haven't yet said it's a good book, um, but uh, that, that will be to to be determined as it were. Um, and then our, our second two sessions, which are done, done jointly with uh, the Braille Revival League, we're going to um, be doing a session with uh, the talking book narrator, um, who is Aaron Jones uh, from the American Printing House for the Blind. And then our last session, which I'm really excited about, is going to be co-hosted by Brian Charlson and myself. And we're going to be talking about some of the new and really exciting changes that have happened to Bard and Bard Express. The Braille Revival League, which is uh, an organization of which I'm president, uh, is going to be doing two sessions on Thursday at the convention. The first one is a panel discussion on the future of Braille, where I'm going to have Kim Charlson and Judy Dixon and uh, a young lady um, who is a, a proofreader uh, at National Braille Press. And we're going to try to talk about the future of Braille because I think there are loads of questions about where Braille's going and how it's going to get there. Uh, and, and so I think that's going to be an exciting session. And our last session is going to be 
uh, a session featuring Brian McDonald, who is the executive director of the National Braille Press. They've done a tremendous amount to promote Braille and publish really interesting books every year. And, and we in the Braille Revival League felt it was time that Brian got an opportunity, A, to come on and tell us about some of the things that the Braille Revi- that, that the uh, National Braille Press is doing, but second, uh, to give folks who are part of the Zoom meeting an opportunity to ask them questions and make suggestions about where the, the, the National Braille Press might go in the future. So those are some of the things I'll be doing during convention. Those are those are all pretty interesting, and those are four great reasons to register for a convention. Because although you'll be able to get it on your A Lady or ACB Link or the various places that you will be able to access convention, and if by you don't phone. register, and by don't phone, of course. Phone. <laughs> but if you don't register for convention, you will not get the Zoom links and be able to participate in great programming like Paul's giving us at convention this year, July 4th through the 10th. Um, so earlier, this is a live show. I know we said we were going to, I was going to go to the Fast Five, but I forgot to ask you a little bit more about resolutions. And like my education so far this year, one of the things that I've heard over and over again is if you want to have a quality resolution, drafted, proofread, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, talk to Paul Edwards, which, you know, we are talking to you about something with BPI. Um, For those out there who might be interested in drafting a resolution, how do you get started? And what maybe five keys would you give to someone who has an idea and wants to turn it into a resolution. So a resolution is really two things. It's it's a statement of a problem and, and, and it's a proposed solution. And if you look at a resolution that way, uh, it makes it a lot easier uh, to, to, to identify the way that you write it. Um, there, there are some special sort of conventions in terms of, in terms of the way you write resolutions, but Essentially, uh, in stating the problem, what you what you really need to do are to write down simple sentences that state what the problem is and that define it. And then, in terms of the solution, you do exactly the same thing: a few simple sentences that say what you want to happen, and and maybe some sim- uh, a few simple sentences that say um, how you want that to happen. And 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 essentially, it, put simply, that's what a resolution is. Okay. Well, you're very open to giving people tips and advice. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for saying, for giving us a little glimpse into your life. Let's do the fast five. So we've all been sheltering in place. What is the best and worst thing about you shelter in place for the time you've had to do it? I think I think the the best thing is is all the all the time I've had to read and and I'm a uh, I'm I'm a sort of a sadist so I've been doing a lot of pandemic reading both fiction and nonfiction <laughs> and and have found probably fifty or sixty books on Bard um, on the pandemic and and by the way our our July Library Without Walls call for Library Users of America is going to be about pandemic books. So folks should uh, tune into that Zoom call 
on the third Wednesday of July at 830 um, to find out all the pandemic books you've missed. Um, the, um, I I think the worst thing is, uh, and it, and it isn't, it isn't very bad. Um, but I, I have this, I have this absolute hankering for a really good steak and, and I haven't had one in, in months and, and, and it is, it, it is beginning to be, uh, a, a, a real desire. So, at some point soon, I'm going to corral people like like you and Gabe and say, I I I don't care about um, um, distancing. Let's find a restaurant and go have a good steak. Um, we're right there with you. I was going to offer to cook dinner, but I'd rather go out for the steak too, to be quite honest. All right, <laughs> number two. What is your guilty pleasure, either food or recreation? Um. I, I love honeyed peanuts and dark chocolate. All right. Number three, you've lived in a lot of interesting places. What are the top three places you'd like to travel to once all this is done? I really loved Australia and New Zealand. I've, I've been to Australia three times and I loved it. And I've, I've been to New Zealand once. Um, and I, and I think I would really like to go back to, um, either Australia or New Zealand, either is probably okay. Um, I think maybe I'd prefer New Zealand because I haven't spent as much time there as I have in Australia. Awesome. All right. Number four, what exotic pet would you choose if you could have any animal on the planet domesticated and ready to be a pet? Uh, none. Um, no, not I'm an a, animal person. I, I am, I, I, I am a, a great cat person. But I think I think I'm too old now to to be to be looking after a pet exotic or otherwise. So um, so I, I wouldn't have one now. Um, in in the past, I I have been much more a cat person than a dog person. All right, I'm both. So I feel you on. I don't. I think cats get a bad rap. Um, they do. It, that's they do. Gail, Gail and I at one point had seven cats. Um, which which was a little overdoing it, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one or two is fine. All right, my last question: You are very much a book person. What book or a couple of books have affected you the most? I'm a a, a science fiction and and fantasy um, lover, um, and and one of one of my most favorite books. Um, is available on Bookshare, but it isn't available on Bard. Maybe we can persuade them to do it. Uh, it's a book called A Mirror for Observers, um, and it's written by a guy called Edgar Pangborn, P-A-N-G-B-O-R-N. He's a he's a, a very learned guy um, who's dead now, lived up in New England and did most of his writing in the 1950s. And A Mirror for Observers is about um, two young people uh, who are being fought over by two factions of hidden Martians who have come to our world um, oh four or five thousand years ago. One of one of which is working to, for the civilization of the world, and the other is is looking to wreck it. Um, and these these two young people, a boy and a girl 
are gifted and um and it's and it's really about how they are affected by by being dealt with by by these guys wow that sounds interesting well bpi is holding the second in a series of genre conversations fiction and multimedia hosted this week by one none other than our byron lee he is tackling the sci-fi genre maybe you'll want to join him uh wednesday at eight for that call and put uh put some of your sci-fi um recommendations out there for the rest you guys you guys always seem to do things when i can't uh wednesday <laughs> at 8 30 the braille revival league is doing our next braille buzz call um which Ooh. will actually be about grade three braille Oh, wow. Well, you can always download the podcast of the session later on if you want from the acbradio.org slash acb-events page or subscribe to the, uh, which I'm sure you're more than well aware of, the ACB events podcast. It'll be up there shortly after we do the event. Excellent. Thank you. And I, I would love to have participated because um, when when Bookshare got started, um, this this will be an indication of just how old I am. But when Bookshare got started, uh, I submitted 3,500 books that I had scanned in science fiction and fantasy. Wow. wow. Well, I suspect that this is going to be a highly attended event and one that we will end up repeating like our audio description shares. So maybe we'll plan the next one to make sure that you are able to attend. I would Love it. like to... Th- Thank you so very much, my radio brother, my Floridian brother, my good <laughs> friend. I would like to thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you have an amazing rest of your Sunday, and I can't wait for that dinner. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> Neither for coming can I. on. It's, it's scheduled for next weekend, I understand. It is. It is. Excellent. And now I don't have to cook. <laughs> so that's even better. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Anthony. Thanks a lot. I will talk to you soon, Paul. And Sunday edition will be right back with Peter from Friends in Arts. Peter, Paul, and no Mary but Jim today. We'll be right back. The ACB auction is the highlight of the conference and convention for many of us. But what will they do this year? Never fear, ACB's got it covered. Just grab your favorite beverages and snacks and settle into your easy chair. That's right, it's the Easy Chair Auction, Tuesday, July 7th, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can attend via Zoom or listen on ACB Radio, wherever your easy chair happens to be. So get ready to support ACB and stay tuned for more details about auction items and how to bid. It's the ACB Easy Chair Auction, part of the 2020 ACB Virtual Conference and Convention, right here on ACB Radio. The Sparrow, the world's leading producer of accessible technology for the visually impaired, takes you on their path to the future on Friday, July 9th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll get the chance to talk with representatives from the company on exciting new features and exciting upgrades to their already existing line of innovative tech products. But before that, set your DeLorean time machine one day back to Thursday, July 8th, and join us at the ACB General Session on Thursday morning for the Sparrow's keynote presentation. 
back. That was an amazing promo. Byron, did you have anything? Did you have a hand in creating that? I sure did, yeah. Tyson and I sat down and recorded that last Are we earlier this week. That was a lot that of fun to make. That was an awesome promo. That's the first time I've heard it. Good, good job. Thanks. Well, we're back with Sun- on Sunday edition with Anthony. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier in the program, you can find the Zoom links on the leadership list, the radio list, and on my personal Facebook page, Anthony Corona, like the beard, not the virus. So if you'd like to join us with any questions or comments for my guest now, Peter, or my upcoming guest, Jim, we'll be talking about voting in the census. Please join us. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Peter Alcho, everyone. Peter, you know, I have to ask you, am I saying your last name right? That's yes, how Alt- Siri pronounces it to me. I'm completely blind. No. Um, it, it's Alcho? Alcho is correct. Nice job. Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining me. So let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us where you're from. Tell us how long you've been with ACB. Tell us what you're working on now. Well, I was raised just north of New York City, Um, spent the first part of my professional life in New York City, continued my professional life in Washington, D.C., and moved to Columbia, Missouri, which is where I live now, to get married. I um, got involved with ACB on and off beginning in 1987, uh, and currently uh, deal with Friends in Art primarily, but also the Employment Committee. Yes, and we're going to get to the Employment Committee in a little while, but tell us what Friends in Art is doing for the convention. Well, the, mo- the, the thing that we're most known for is the showcase, and of course we will have a showcase uh, virtually, and one of the things we'll be doing next week is we've got a lot of really wonderful um, submissions to get on the show, and we have to do what we always do every year, which is to figure out who goes where. So that's what we're going to be doing next week, probably Tuesday or Wednesday. And once the once we get that in place, then we'll work with Jason to do the intros and outros and all that stuff, so that by the time the show uh, the time for the show happens, it'll be ready to roll. Any surprises this year that you can uh, tease us with? Uh, let's see what's going on. Um, I have submitted two things. Um, our scholarship winner is doing something. Uh, which is terrific. Last year's Friends in Art Scholarship winner is doing something which is more amazing. Um, those are the things I'm most. Oh, we have a we have a, we have a comedian who's doing something. Uh, a couple of folks reading their written works. We have some surprises from uh, from prior showcases. We're going to honor Lynn Heddle, um, who I'm sure we'll talk about later, and um, uh, John Dashney, who was a wonderful uh, writer slash poet. And um, so I think we're going to, um, I think, but I'm not sure we're going to do something of his as well. So it should be a really, I think it should be a fabulous show. I think so too. And you mentioned Blaine, there's been, there's been some beautiful stuff on ACB radio and I'm sure that you guys have something beautifully planned to honor her at the convention. Did you want to speak a little about Lynn? I, I wrote a piece for Lynn in the, for the, for the Braille, uh, uh, ACB Braille forum. She was a, I didn't really realize how extraordinary she was until she was elected president of Friends in Art. And we were sort of, we, we, were, we weren't doing really well when she became president. We were sort of struggling. And she sort of took over and ran with it. And now we're in a much, much better place. I mean, we've started our podcasts. 
with some, some of which are on ACV radio. We have gotten new membership. We're, we're getting younger, which I am so happy about. Um, and she just took, she just led. And one of the things she was really extraordinary at was getting people to do stuff that they weren't quite comfortable doing. Um, you know, she seemed to find strengths in people that uh, they didn't know existed within them and, and used it. And um, was always wonder, had always interesting and wonderful things to say. And of course, was a huge fan of wine and chocolate. <laughs> that I did learn. I had the, the, the honor and, and of meeting her at leadership this year. And uh, we had a breakfast together, myself and Gabe and her. And what an interesting, wonderful conversation. And I'm so glad that I had the chance to meet her. So why don't we tell the folks where they can find friends in art, how they can join, how they can support. The, the best way to, to, to join is to go to friendsinart.com or as our jingle says, friendsinart.com. And <laughs> um, you can, you can do a, you know, a number of things are up there, including becoming a member. Dues are $15 a year, 10 for students. And we are in the process of upgrading the website, but we are in the process of doing that. Um, uh, and uh, one of the things we do is remove Lynn as the president. She's no longer the president, unfortunately. Our Mike Mandel from New York City is our current president and is, is taking on Lynn's challenge and doing quite well. So we're very pleased. But the, the best way to get a hold of us is friendsinart.com. Nice. Now let's dive into employment. That is something that is always a hot button slash participation slash interest. What can you tell us to expect this year convention from the employment committee? Unfortunately, nothing. Um, there was a, a lot of confusion uh, on the committee and um, we just could not get our act together and submit something. And uh, we regret that. The good news is that we have started uh, every two weeks, a, a discussion group, uh, one of the Zoom meetings on employment. Please email celebration. And while I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like, one of the things we're, we're looking at is finding people who have done unusual things employment-wise who are blind and talk about their experiences doing those unusual things. And um, maybe getting those on ACV radio, but at least creating podcasts. Um, so I think that's, that's sort of where we're headed. And if one of our listeners is or has a friend who is doing something interesting that you wouldn't, you wouldn't typically think of for a career path for a blind person, how can they contact you? Probably, the best, there? probably the best thing to do is to, is to send me an email. Um, and my email address is creating common ground, all one word, creating common ground at outlook.com. And just send me a brief information about who you are and what makes you unusual. And I'll take it to the committee and we'll see what happens next. Well, I think we should subtitle that with what makes you unusual. You're going to get a lot of interesting submissions. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, uh, you know, All right, that joke fell flat. We think there are lots of good stories to tell that aren't being told. And, you know, I think we sort of get in ruts of doing certain things, you know, as blind people, vocal numbers or teaching for the blind or doing stuff in the disability arena 
or doing lawyer work on that. And that stuff is important, but that's only part of what I think blind people do and should be doing. So um, I'd like to, I'd like to get some of those stories out there. On that, on that note, actually, I'd like to ask you, you know, we were talking about rehab services in the earlier segment with Paul and I myself, you know, the listeners know at this point that I'm only four years in and my career in journalism was shifted so radically that it was not something that I could go back to doing at the time. And even now with the, with the, the grasp on technology that I have, the turnaround time is still way too quick for me to be able to Uh, you know, file confirmations, so on and so forth, to turn around an article with the Associated Press. Um, and so when I went for employment services to try to figure out, you know, another career path, I found that there were just a few boxes, just a few paths. And that there really, if you if you weren't interested in those couple of paths that were out there, that there really wasn't much that they could do to help you. Um, there wasn't much direction that they could focus, at least me in, but this is a common thread that I've heard a lot. Do you think that that voc rehab services and, and employment rehab services are hitting the mark? Do you think where do you think that improvement could happen? I'm another one of those people who voc rehab had a hard time servicing, and in most of the work I ended up doing had nothing to do with with without much assistance from from voc rehab. In defense of the system, at least in Missouri, I can't speak for any other state. They are overworked and underpaid. Um, you know, it, it, they have a very difficult job to do. I, I, um, without going into enormous detail, I'm really worried about the future of employment for a lot of people, but especially um, folks with disabilities. I think a lot of jobs are going to get eaten by technology. Uh, I think, as you said, technology is moving so fast that sometimes it's hard for uh, the technology that we use to keep up. Uh, I think there are lots of challenges that we're going to have to wrestle with, with or without voc rehab. And as I had a, I had a, a, a meeting with the folks, uh, VR folks in Missouri last week, and I said to them, if we don't get ahead of this curve, we're going to be left behind. So I think this is really, really important that we begin to have these conversations in very different ways. It may be, for example, that maybe we're going to have to form, for example, co-ops and, um, you know, get a bunch of blind folks or disabled folks together to do certain things together rather than work for the big corporations or something else. I think we have to explore lots of different things. Um, but I, I, I think the whole employment trajectory, as we've experienced before March 12th, which is my day in my life when the, when the virus hit me, um, is, is very different. That's going to be very different a year from now and certainly two years from now. I'm guessing, but that's what I think. I'm, I'm, Guessing that you're, you're you're right. Pre March twelfth, what advice would you have given to someone who is either newly blind or coming out of traditional education and wanting to go into the work world? What advice would you have given them then? And if that advice shifts now because of the COVID pandemic, what would you give now? The, the most important advice I can give, and I think this is especially important for any, for anybody from a underrepresented group, not just if you're blind, but, you know, pick, pick the minority group. And that is to have a really clear sense of what your strength is, whatever it is, and then um, cultivate it, you know, figure out ways to get, get better at whatever that thing is or those things are, and then learn how to market it. Learn how to talk about your strengths with other people. 
Um, that's something that I don't see enough of us doing. Um, and I really wish more of us could do that well, because if you can do that, that gives you a sense of what, of what career opportunities might exist for you. It gives you more options to explore. It, it, it makes you a better communicator. It makes you a better storyteller. Uh, and I just, I, I wish that we would spend a little more time individually and supporting others and doing just that. And of course, you have the mobility and the technology issues. Those are important to go without saying. But I think this finding your strength and, and, and cultivating is a really important one that we don't talk enough about. Well, thank you very much. I am going to ask Caleb if we have anybody waiting with any questions. Uh, no, no one new came in unless anyone in the Zoom room had, had one. If anyone in there has a question, Anthony, raise your hand. This is yes. Paul Edwards. I, I, hey, I Paul. would uh, love to talk to Peter about something. Sure. I'm glad you're still here. Um, so, Peter, um, I think you should tell folks about your blogs. Um, I, I, I spent, oh, I don't know, two or three hours yesterday. Um, looking at the last five or six years of your musings, and I and I think they're a resource that that blind folks ought to uh, ought ought to a have access to, and b would find extremely interesting because of how diverse um, your musings are, and 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 also how much wisdom there is there. So tell folks about that. You thank stole you, my thunder, Paul, because I was going to ask that in the end. But thank you for that. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Paul, for the kind words. When I finished my memoir, Breaking Barriers, which is available through my website, which is peteralchul.com. That's Peter, A-L-T-S-C-H-U-L.com. Also available on Bard, also available on Bookshare. I was working with a publicist and I said, okay, what do I need to do to market the book? She said, you should start blogging. I said, okay, tell me about it. So we talked about blogging. I said, okay, what's the most important thing you can tell me about writing a blog? No, that's no. the first question I asked was, what should I blog about? And she said, anything you want. I thought, okay, that's helpful. And then I said, what's the best advice you can give me as I start writing my blog? She said, keep each blog under 750 words. And that was the best advice I was ever given as far as writing blogs. Um, and I say that as one who sort of looks at other blogs and I just find once you get a much beyond that, um, number of words, it just, it, it, people just don't read them. Uh, yeah. and I think it's a really important and valuable skill to be able to be succinct and write what you think and write clearly. Um, so I write about a number of things. I write about, um, the workplace. We've talked about that. I write about a lot about diversity, uh, not just about disability, but diversity. I write about politics. I write about religion. I write about, I've read a couple of few things about the, the pandemic and what we're going through and probably will write a few things more about that. Um, I write about, I wrote about family life when I was raising three stepkids. Um, I write about public policy upon occasion. I, I did, I do occasionally write about disability when something interests me. Um, so, um, you know, it, it sort of t connects with the, um, you know, the various facets of my life. I write, I write about music too. I didn't mention that. I write about music a lot. So, you know, I, if anybody wants to be added to my, to, to the list of blog uh, recipients or you know, whatever the right word is, when I send a new one out, please um, 
send an email to me at creatingcommonground@outlook.com, and I'll add you to my list. I will tell you that I have some fairly strong political views on certain topics, and I write about them once in a while. So, you know, be warned ahead of time. And so Paul opened up the gate. Tell us a little more about the book. Well, I have two books, actually. The first book is a memoir, and it talks about my life until I got married at the age of 50 to to Lisa. Um, And it's it's sort of in in conjunction with a lot of sort of things that happened within a, a year period, essentially, when I got my... Uh, fifth guide dog at Guiding Eyes for the Blind. And right around the same time, my stepmother died suddenly. So, um, and so I sort of talk about those experiences in the first three parts and then flash back to various other aspects of my life. One of the things I find really interesting about when you're going through a, uh, you know, like a thing like getting a guide dog and you're being changed and all kinds of things, you're learning new skills very rapidly. It's a very stressful thing. At least for me and for other folks I've talked with, it helps it helps you reflect back on your prior life. And that's what happened to me when I was getting jewels at Guiding Eyes. So I talked about my my experiences uh, being raised and some of the work I've done before and after Guiding Eyes I write about in the book. And then um, the last part talks about my move to Columbia and getting married. Some of you may have read my piece in the Braille Forum called A June Wedding. That's a, That comes from the book. And uh, it talks about uh, it was a wacko wedding in all kinds of ways. If you haven't read the piece, I encourage you to read it. But I more importantly encourage you to read the book. Um, the second book came out in 2017. And that actually is a compilation of sort of my best, what I thought were my best blog posts uh, written between 2012 and 2017. And and it's divided into, it's divided into sections. It's divided, you know, into... It's, so it's not written chronologically, it's written by sections. So there's a section on sports, there's a section on raising kids, there's a section on the workplace. I'm forgetting some of them. There's a section on one of the things I, my, that I spend a lot of time doing is helping people find common ground. So I write about finding ways to make that happen. I write about my Christian journey. Um, so there, and, But all the essays are short. So you can read one or two, put it aside, and pick it up the next day. You can go, you don't have to read it in order. You can read it, you know, that those sections that interest you and bypass the rest. Oh, and then of course there's a section about president Trump. Um, so, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that book is also available on Bookshare. It's called breaking it down and connecting the dots. It's also available through Bard. So both my books are available from books, both sources. And I, if you look under alt my last name, Peter alt you'll be able to find the books and I hope you read them. And Paul, I hope you would bring me on sometime to talk about them. Way to connect. All right, I'm gonna do a fast five with you. During the pandemic, what blogs or podcasts have you found that you didn't know of before that have become favorites? Uh, none, actually. There, there is a blog that I really like. Um, I don't follow too many podcasts, in fact, um, except, the, except the ones that I record, uh, co-host. Um, which you can do any way you want. But there is a blog post I like by a guy named Alain Shavat from Israel, who um, uh, is, a, is a very interesting guy in my field of organization behavior, who writes sort of similarly, the same style I do, who says lots of controversial stuff about 
the uh, shortcomings of my field. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So I would, I would highlight if you're interested in sort of organization behavior and look, look, or looking for iconoclastic sort of uh, obnoxious stuff, look for Alan Shabbat. Awesome. Number two. Brain freeze. Sorry. Uh, number two, what is your guilty pleasure, food or recreation? I'm sort of like Paul, though I don't like sweet uh, honey peanuts. I love dark chocolate, especially with nuts. And I love greasy food of any description. Nice. Number three, what was the most surprising thing about being a stepfather? How hard it was. <laughs> um, how hard it was. You know, I, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I'm, I have training in psychology, organization, behavior. And I, and I was raised, I, I had a stepmom and stepdad growing up. So I had some understanding of, of dynamics involved, but I, you know, I didn't, I never, you never can see how things are to you actually are in the, in, in the situation. Uh, and it took some real getting used to. Um, and I think I did a reasonable job, but my, my kids first love was their dad as it should be, but it created some real tensions around the house. Thank you for being, thank you for that honesty. Number four, your top five albums of all time. Uh, that's a hard one, but I can tell you at least my, my two or three come to mind, uh, sure. uh, uh artists and in no particular order. They are Dave Matthews band, huge Dave Matthews. Band. Yeah. Um, Steely Dan, big Steely Dan fan. The Beatles, and then I would um, pivot to Igor Stravinsky from the classical European classical style, and um, Beethoven. Uh, I think you know those are sort of the artists. I think uh, albums are sort of harder to to do for me, but I hope those five artists give you a sense of who I am. Absolutely, well, I, I have to answer Earth, Wind, and Fire too. I, I, I need to add uh, another another band. Rob. And a lot of Marset while we're at it. Um, so, rock on with all the Star, above. Not Barbara Streisand. <laughs> She's not like butter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and last but not least, give me your favorite convention memory. Meeting my future wife. Mm. Um. So. Uh, the, the, the short version of the story is uh, it was a, there was a reception uh, going on, one of those mixers that were going on. And so uh, I'd met her the prior year and we hadn't talked for an entire year since that time. So um, I came in and she said, hi, Peter, it's great seeing you. I'll, you know, don't go anywhere. I'll come and join you. Well, I waited for 45 minutes and nobody showed up. And so I got up to leave and she she ran to me and said, no, 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 no. I haven't forgotten you. I'm here. You know, and then that started our relationship and we, we drank too much beer and danced and, and the rest was history. That's nice. That's really nice. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to the friends in art showcase and I look forward to diving further into your blog. Paul has inspired me. I've, I've seen a couple of the pieces, but I'm going to go back and really dive into it. Thanks for joining me, and hopefully you'll come back someday soon. Well, I'll come back if you invite me. I absolutely will. Okay. This is Sunday edition, and I will be right back after these 
two short messages. Do you remember BPI? Oh yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB. Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention. Guess what they're up to now? Do tell. Their own show. It's called Pride Connection. That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community? This is a show for everyone. Actually, non-LGBT and non-disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. Everyone is welcome. So what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection? Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness to LGBT education, technology to advocacy. So when will Pride Connection take place? Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect and learn while having fun. Pride Connection on On ACB ACB Radio Mainstream. Sunday Edition is underwritten by Ira. A description of life on your terms. Ira is a visual interpreting service provided by trained agents through a smartphone app available in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Or call our customer care team at 1-800-835-1934. And we're back on Sunday edition. I would like to remind everybody we had an amazing conversation with Janine Stanley last week about some tips on how to use Ira, some new things that you can try, and also about the ACB family pricing. Check out your Ira app and look for that new pricing. Anyways, I am now going into happenings with another amazing Floridian, Mr. Jim Crott. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And so the reason I invited you, other than the fact that I think you're an awesome guy, is because you are on the forefront of the voting issue. I want to know a bit about the census. And if you our listeners, A, why it's so important, and B, how it actually factors into voting. Well, let me, um, let me take a brief second to talk about the census. Uh, sure. It's important because... Uh, first of all, in Congress, our, our House of Representatives is divided into districts based upon how many people live in each district. And the way that's calculated every 10 years is by who appropriately responds uh, to the U.S. Census. So if you don't respond, you don't get counted. Your district doesn't grow by uh, you as a, as a representative and you don't get to vote. Um, so it's extremely important that we all complete the census information. You can do it by mail, you can do it by telephone, or you can do it on the Internet. And uh, it, it makes a huge uh, impact on national or f- federal funding of state and local governmental services. It makes a huge impact on on how your uh government reacts both uh, on a national level and on a state and local level, but you need to get that information in. It's not prying. It doesn't include social security numbers or credit card numbers or bank account information. It's um, very neutral, um, but it does want who you are, where you live, and 
whether you rent or own your home and how long you've lived where you've lived. Is it true that the information that you provide is only used for census and census purposes only and is never shared with other agencies? That's my understanding. My listeners know that, that I've talked about the census a few times already because it is such an important piece of um, of our government that, and it's such an important piece for our lives. If we're not counted correctly, then we're not gonna be able to be serviced correctly. So thank you for expounding on that a little bit. And let's talk voting. You've been really, really active, Mr. Jim. Can you tell everybody what you've been doing in regards to voting? You know, it's hard to believe, Anthony, that it was 20 years ago uh, this year that I learned how to advocate and become a, a true advocate. Uh, it was 20 years ago when I had a really bad experience voting in my precinct, um, and that was enough of an embarrassing uh, situation to cause me to move and get active and, and start, and I've been going ever since. Um, two years ago, uh, about this month, um, I was invited to meet with our Division of Elections uh, director uh, to talk about vote-by-mail and the option of a vote-by-mail system for blind and disabled voters. Um, there were a couple systems out there. I only knew of one of them. Um, they had been trying to get into Florida for a time. I'd been known as a voting machine, accessible voting machine advocate for years. I'd made quite a name for myself uh, advocating for accessibility in the polling place arena. Um, but we needed to consider the people that weren't going to the polling place. And um, so I met with her uh, and we shared a, a cocktail and talked at length about both the application for uh, a system approval that a vendor must go through in Florida to be able to be have a product that can be sold to local governments in Florida. And we talked about the need for vote by mail. And we also talked about the use of some Help America Vote Act funds that had become recently distributed to the state to uh, possibly acquire uh, the voting system for uh, local governments. Now, in Florida, uh, the state does not buy technology for local governments, so it was kind of novel for me to suggest that in the first instance. But more importantly, um, Director Matthews made it clear to me that they would love to work on vote by mail, but the company that I was talking about hadn't gotten their application into Florida. They'd made their presence known, but they didn't have a pending application. So uh, I, on the same day, I met with the president of uh, one of the vendors, and we talked at length, and I started pushing uh, him as well to get his application in, because without an application, Florida couldn't have vote-by-mail option. Um, we've been going back and forth for two years. Um, finally, about a month ago, uh, I was pleased to learn that that application um, was, in fact, finalized and moved 
up to the director's desk for signature, um, but there it seemed to stall. And uh, I was ready for it to stall. Um, I knew that they had played political games with us in that office before, um, not necessarily in the, the voting division's office, but at least if not there, then higher up. And our time was short. We have a primary coming up in the middle of August and the general election in November. So uh, we were able to retain a law firm and there was pending voting challenge litigation, system-wide challenge litigation already in the state of Florida in the Northern District Federal Court. And uh, our lawyer moved to intervene in that litigation that motion was granted on Wednesday. The litigation is fast-tracked for an injunction hearing the end of May, June and trial in early July. Um, so it should be able to have an impact on the upcoming elections. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity to get in front of a really great judge. Um, we're really excited and think that with what's happened in Michigan and New York Pennsylvania, and even with Massachusetts just adopting legislation for vote by mail, uh, that this can happen in Florida. It's been the law in Florida that there be an accessible vote by mail option for blind and disabled voters since 2002. Uh, but that law has been ignored. Um, and so we're hopefully in a good position in the driver's seat to bring Florida into the 13 or 14 other jurisdictions that already have an accessible vote-by-mail option. Is there anything that blind Floridians can do to add their voice? Um, sure. I think every blind Floridian can uh, get in touch with their supervisors of election and urge that supervisor to be ready to launch um, the Democracy Live software system as soon as it's approved, either voluntarily or by court order, um, because it does take some coordination on the local government side. Our lawsuit includes the supervisors as parties, and we're asking that the state use um, CARES stimulus money that they received to fund uh, for elections to fund the $1 to $1.2 million that would allow 67 counties to acquire and implement a vote-by-mail option for voters who are blind or have low vision. Well, thank you for that information. And we are definitely holding our breath for a positive outcome. And thank you. thank you for all the hard work that you've done over 20 years on a more personal well, level. I think before you leave the subject, let me just say that I, I think the important part about my advocacy work on the voting side is this is true grassroots advocacy from the very basic level. Uh, yeah. I started off at a, uh, a conference of election officials in Broward County and took five minutes or so and gave some very um, poignant remarks that were um, brief to the point but hard. I walked out of there and said, this isn't enough. I then proceeded to turn those remarks into a letter to the governor. 
I then proceeded to turn those remarks into an article for the Braille Forum and the White Cane Bulletin, uh, and have gone on from there. And, um, you know, I've been in front of uh, legislative committees testifying. Uh, I've called up our local chapters and asked them to go to committee meetings that I couldn't make to, t- to testify, and they've done it. And they're gr- it's all grassroots advocacy through and through, but we've made a huge difference. Two years ago, we got legislation enacted. It took five years to get it through that basically made uh, the ESNS system uh, uh, an accessible legalized uh, voting system in Florida after 2020 that required a legislative change. We got that. Uh, and this this uh, vote-by-mail system advocacy has been, it's required a lot of perseverance. It's required a lot of hardcore uh, door-knocking, drag-down fighting, screaming, yelling. But it's still um, something that is Basically, any one of our listeners can do the same thing. It just requires hard work, perseverance, determination, and grit. Well, I love I love, I love when my guests take me in the direction that I wanted to go. Um, besides our own advocacy team, Claire and Clark in the in the national office, who are awesome. What other resources do you suggest? for our listeners to check out for voting, not only in Florida, but nationally? Um, I would suggest that they contact uh, Claire Stanley in the national office. Um, There have been a couple of articles in our publications over the years. I will have a detailed article coming out in the next issue of the White Cane Bulletin that will tell the whole story of vote by mail uh, in Florida, um, and um, for a net more national level, though, you're going to have to go to the ACB national office. Awesome. Anthony, this is Paul. Can I ask Jim a question? Sure can. So, Mr. Crott, um, right, right now, vote by mail is being tackled on a state-by-state level. There's certainly federal legal authority um, for vote by mail for folks who are blind in, in the ADA and elsewhere. But do you think there's any value uh, or or not in going after federal legislation um, that that would that would actually categorically and unequivocally say that vote by mail for folks with disabilities in every state ought to be a mandate? Um, Realistically, I'm not sure that it would do that much. Um, The states that have been asked to consider it uh, on the playing field that we're on right now have been very hot to to follow suit. They, They think the ADA requires accessible vote by mail. I think the ADA requires it. Um, and I think to go down the federal legislation road at this point is is a much more difficult challenge that's still 
that won't solve the problem. I mean, we 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 tried that with Hava um, in 2002, and it it really it, it appropriated some money for the states, but I don't think that that by and large the federal response to voting, which has traditionally been a state and lo- local government jurisdiction issue, um, in, in this instance will make a have a huge impact. Um, thank you, Paul. And thank you, Jim. So let's um, shift focus a little bit. In accessible voting, the – I'm sorry, my brain is uh, is – freezing for a moment accessible voting voting traditionally has been in your polling precincts there's been a lot of talk about why uh, balloting by mail is you know not a good idea that it could be fraught for um misuse and so on and so forth can can you tell our listeners a little bit about why and why vote by mail how it's safe, why it's so important, et cetera, et cetera. Well, sure. Um, for 18 years, I have been a very strong proponent of an advocate for uh, precinct voting. Um, that's what I grew up with. That's what I have touted. Uh, that's what I firmly believe in as the fundamental basic civil right uh, that we're fighting to protect. Nevertheless, it has become clear that many blind voters uh, in our community do not want to go to the precinct. They, they don't, either because they don't have good travel skills, because they don't want to leave their homes, because they don't want the, um, the experience, uh, for, for whatever reason, they're much more comfortable either not voting or voting at home with assistance. The fundamental part of, of voting, accessible voting, is the right to cast a secret, verifiable uh, ballot mm-hmm. and, and privately without, assist, without assistance, independently. And it became clear to me that while we didn't get the groundswell of use of voting machines that were accessible, that we fought for all over the country, that were mandated by federal law in every state, in every precinct, um, that we needed to have a vote-by-mail option. And I hence switched my focus and started advocating for vote-by-mail. A lot of people said I was a traitor. And, you know, why was I advocating for vote-by-mail when I'd fought so hard for voting machines? I think they're two separate and distinct things. But I Mm -hmm. think I I get to wear a crown for this one because I didn't know then, but I know now that we have COVID-19. And I know that in this pandemic, a huge number of people do not want to go to the polling places. And that huge number of people includes a lot of us who are blind or have low vision. And if we don't force the state of Florida and other states to implement vote by mail in an accessible fashion, we're losing the civil right to vote privately, independently, and verifiably. 
and the systems that you advocate for. Can you speak to their veracity and their security, et cetera, et cetera? I, I, I will talk a little bit about their security and, and another issue as well. Um, in Florida, as in many jurisdictions, um, we're not at the point safety-wise, security-wise, where we can have true, quote, Internet, unquote, voting. Um, it, there are security issues. Uh, I remember the, the Secretary of Elections telling me years ago, Florida will never have telephone voting. Telephonic voting was touted back in the early 2000s as the mm -hmm. end all uh, to accessible voting, but it does lack security. Uh, and there is a wide groundswell uh, out there that says Internet voting uh, has many security issues that aren't yet solvable. Um, this system is secure. The portal that they provide the ballot to voters on is is very secure. It's secure with the Secretary of State or the Division of Elections and the supervisors who will be administering it. What it does is it delivers each voter a, that has registered for uh, an accessible vote-by-mail uh, option, uh, an accessible ballot that they can use with their screen reader, uh, their magnifier, their Braille display. They can get bring up their ballot. They can mark it privately and independently. Uh, they can verify their selections, and then they can either print it out or save it to their um, thumb drive and take that somewhere and get it printed if they don't have a printer at home, put it in an envelope and mail it back to the precinct signing the envelope and your signature will be matched against the signature on your um, voting registration card. Um, it's not perfect and it's not for everybody, but it's a huge step in the right direction and it provides a an excellent option for those who uh, don't have the desire at this point in time to go to their precinct and use an accessible voting machine. What are the statistics, if you know generally, on vision, low vision and no vision voters? And what do you think the statistics will look like if this measure takes place in Florida? I, I do not know the statistics, um, number one. Number two, I would be reluctant to put much stock in the statistics for these upcoming elections because I don't think there's going to be the time or the impetus to properly alert the communities to the existence of the accessibility options. I have tried for two years to get this system certified here in Florida, so we had more time to get this done. But I think uh, while some people will know about it, the vast majority of voters, unfortunately, may not know about it. Is there anything that listeners can do to raise awareness? Um, absolutely. Uh, listeners can tell all of their friends, can alert as many people who are blind or low vision in this state or the other states that have accessible voting of its existence um, and um, make it clear that um, it's out there and available. 
Um, I'm looking for a list of the states that I know of that are using, that have accessible voting. They include New York, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Uh, Massachusetts, which just joined, as well as California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Washington, D.C., Delaware, Ohio, New Jersey, Vermont, West Virginia, and Maryland, and hopefully soon to be Florida. So advocates in other states like Florida that haven't that haven't gotten systems in place, where can they go for more information and to start their own grassroots campaign? Well, there are grassroots campaigns going on all over the country now. There was a tremendous amount of publicity after the Supreme Court in Michigan ruled that the state of Michigan had to provide an accessible uh, vote-by-mail option for blind and and low-vision voters several weeks ago. Um, There are two or three states that have uh, complaints with the Department of Justice pending that will certainly highlight the issue and provide some uh, uh, publicity and hopefully more accessibility. Uh, Utah, for example, is is one of the states that's it's got a campaign going on. Um, there are a number of states uh, out there, uh, I would say at least another 10 or 15 that have the issue raised. So we're having many successes and we're having activity in many other states. Um, the national office, Clark and, and Claire, have been um, very vocal about uh, helping other states. I'm certainly available to talk to anybody in any state that uh, wants information or that I can uh, have dialogue with. I can be reached at James K, and then last name K-R-A-C-H-T, at gmail.com. And uh, I will try to respond to any email requests that I get. Um, and um, I'm a member of the board of directors of ACB, so I think my contact information is on the ACB website. Uh, I'm also on the Florida Council of the Blind website as the immediate past president of the Florida Council of the Blind and as the chairman of the Access Committee of FCB. Awesome. So let's switch direction for a little bit and let's let the listeners get to know a little bit about, I mean, I think most of the listeners probably know you, but let's give them a little bit of personal. Tell us how you got to ACB. You've been president of Florida Council of the Blind. You've been on the board of directors of ACB for a few years now. How'd you get here? Um, you know, uh, I went to Harvard College in law school. I graduated in 1975, and I think the first time in my life that I really had to grapple with the fact that I was blind and life wasn't, quote, fair, unquote, uh, was when I started looking for a job. Uh, it was horrible. I went to a, certainly a prestigious law firm. I law school. I did well in law school, but it didn't really seem to matter. I must have interviewed a hundred uh, law firms uh, and explored many different opportunities. Um, I finally landed a job in Miami uh, with a very prestigious local government opportunity known as one of the best law firms in southeastern United States. Uh, I came down to Miami in 1975 
and I went to my first ACB meeting in 1977 on Miami Beach, um, and I had met Phil Poftra, the then president, uh, by then he was already passed away, but the president of the American Blind Lawyers Association, now Avia, and um, I was very active in, in, in Abla Avia for, I would say, 15 years. Um, I was its president, I was a treasurer, I was vice president, a board member, and I would come to ACB conventions. I made a lot of friends, um, but I primarily hung out uh, with the lawyers group. Uh, they met the first two or three days of the convention. Uh, I would stay on during the week because I had other friends in the organization, but I really didn't become active uh, in ACB or FCB until probably the mid-90s. Um, you talked about Gail earlier. Gail worked in the same building that I worked in, and we became very close and friendly, and she kind of encouraged me into the Florida Council of the Blind, the Miami, one of the Miami chapters, the most active Greater Orlando, um, Greater Miami chapter. Um, and um, in 2000, when I started my advocacy efforts on voting, um, Gail and I went to, to that first meeting that I talked about together, and she was a great coach and a great inspiration and teacher and helped me kind of pave the way. Uh, I continued going to ACB conventions and went to FCB conventions from then on. Uh, I served on the board of FCB for a number of years uh, as a representative of the chapter and as a Constitution and Bylaws Committee chair, uh, and finally was convinced once my job ended with the Dade County Attorney's Office and I could do uh, true advocacy work and get involved in other uh, efforts, uh, I was convinced to run for the office of president of FCB. I served the then mandated uh, two terms as president uh, and have been active as the first, uh, as a immediate past president. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, my time with FCB was a family commitment. We acquired some real estate. My son is a lawyer. He did some legal work for him. My daughter has become involved with FCB and helped with the uh, chapter. My wife was my chief partner in crime, was a tremendous asset and helped me um, as I wrote articles and uh, get from place to place to place and otherwise coached me on how to deal with issues that came up and people that I had to deal with. Um, my ACB involvement, I, I guess I have to I've been involved with ACB, but never uh, on the political side. And I guess if I thanked anybody for that or didn't thank them for that, curse them for that, it would be <laughs> Paul Edwards who encouraged me to seek a board position. Um, and I did that and am pleased to be uh, helping ACB w with the board work. Awesome. Well, you're an immediate predecessor. 
had a daunting challenge this year to take the Florida Council of the Blind Convention and be the first state to step up and do it virtually. What was the highlight of FCB's convention for you? And any comments to Ms. Sheila? Who led um, that I, I think effort. The, con- the convention was a complete success. I, I think it was uh, a, an awesome uh accomplishment for Sheila Young. She did an outstanding job. Uh, I think one of the best parts of the convention was that it provided an awesome training ground for the ACB radio team to get ready for upcoming nationals. And I know that's going to be a wonderful experience because they did such a wonderful job with our convention. Thank you for that. What are you looking forward to national convention? You know, there's so much on the, on the program. I, I, I registered in, I guess, Tuesday of last week and it, it kind of was a, um, what's the right word? Uh, it, it was kind of a sad reminder that I'm really going to miss uh, being at national, uh, you can't cry in your beer. Uh, the answer is we can't be at national. I, I know that. I knew that. I was a big proponent of making sure we got out of that contract when we did um, in Illinois. Um, but um, I think the opportunities that are on the program uh, really pleased me um, because the breadth of the convention and the fact that it can be attended by so many people uh, that don't normally attend our conventions is really exciting. Uh, I hope that we will grow our membership because of it. Uh, I've always thought our conference and convention was, was a highlight of one of the best things we have to offer. And, um, Certainly, we've expanded and grown over the years to providing such a wide variety of scope and scope of um, other uh, activities and services and programs, but it really is a wonderful, has always been a wonderful opportunity and a great experience for me, and even virtually, I'm, I'm sure that I will learn a lot and gain uh, in-depth knowledge that I don't otherwise have. Awesome. Well, you are someone that I've also gotten to know since moving to Florida. Although I think we've got a lot more exploring to do in the friendship, but you have an incredibly interesting hobby. You want to tell the listeners a little bit about what Jim does when he is not advocating for voting? Eight years ago, or thereabouts, when I retired, uh, I took up something that I had been interested in since my college days, but really didn't know how interested I was. Um, About 20 years, 25 years ago, I went to an auction and and tried to bid on an antique music box, but I didn't get it. I spent a week or so researching music boxes at the time and was very excited. But in 2012, I inherited a few dollars and I decided that it was time to 
do something special for myself, and I bought two music boxes, one for each of my two homes, um, and my wife was extremely supportive, and we bought a 27-inch Regina changer that sits about six feet tall and is in the entry or actually the edge of the great room in our winter garden home. And I bought a 18 and a half inch mirror console that sits in our living room in Miami. Both of those machines took me to California, uh, Illinois, Ohio, um, Salt Lake City, uh, looking for uh, opportunities to buy the right ones. I bought one of each. Uh, that was then uh, for my 70th birthday in April. Um, my wife pre- presented me with my 45th music box in the collection. So, yes, it's grown. I have cylinder boxes. I have disc boxes. I have antique snuff boxes. I have boxes that date back to 1810. Um circa 1810-1820. My um, most recent newest music box was built by me as a 50th wedding anniversary gift for my wife. It's a small jewelry box that um, plays the song we courted to and is called is Our Song. Uh, that song is That's All. The version we courted to was by Ricky Nelson. And um, there was a whole article coming out in the latest Music Box Journal article, uh, magazine that tells the story of how I got the idea for that music box, designed it, put it together, had it uh, built, and presented it to my wife back in August of nineteen of eight nine twenty eighteen. God bless and happy belated birthday. Tell us a little bit about a little bit about that. Tell us about how you courted and what life is like right now. Well, um, we met uh, when I was a senior in high school. I had just broken up with a, a really nice girl, and I swore I was not going to date any more women. And um, my wife had other ideas. Uh, <laughs> she was. Uh, she was in college and she decided that because she had other ideas, she was going to transfer to a local college, um, by where I lived. And, uh, we went together all through my senior year of high school. Um, when I got into Harvard, um, we had a choice and we decided we could go back to Massachusetts and live together and get everybody mad at us. And that's what was popular and prevalent in the late sixties, or we could just get everybody really good and mad at us and get married and get it over with. And that's exactly what we did. Um, we met at an Easter seal camp. She was a counselor at that camp. I was not a camper there. I was staying at the camp and, and, um, we, um, from there, um, the rest is history. 52 years later. <laughs> That's right. We have two children, um, and we have three grandchildren. Uh, our son is a lawyer. Our daughter was involved in hospitality management and is sales and is now a 
parent and involved as an incredible mother. Um, my son and daughter-in-law are both lawyers. They have a law practice in Winter Park, Florida, and our daughter lives in Claremont, and so that's why we have a second home up in there. Oh, God bless. That is a beautiful story. 52 years is something to be really proud of. Um, uh, that's only because I have a perfect mate. <laughs> well, I am to do with my perfection. <laughs> I am eagerly awaiting COVID to be finally done because I want to get a gander at some of these music boxes. <laughs> some of this. I'm looking forward to having you down to to show you. Uh, I love my music boxes. I enjoy the time I spend with them. They really put me in a good space every time I listen to them. Uh, I've written three articles recently that will be published in the journal. That's been a lot of fun. I'm not a big writer, uh, so I've enjoyed doing that. I've made some tremendous friends, uh, just like I did with ACB. I've made some great friends in the Music Box Society International, uh, especially in the Southeast chapter. Um, we meet three to four times a year before COVID. Uh, I went to my first national meeting in uh, Rockville, Maryland. Um, last Labor Day weekend. Um, unfortunately, the meeting for California was in this Labor Day was canceled a couple weeks ago. But there will be others, and it's a great group. And It's an older group. Uh, we need more members. We need more younger members. Um, but I've pushed uh, there. Uh, I get the journals from both music box organizations, mechanical instrument organizations in an accessible format. Uh, they weren't that way when I started. So I have made some noise and had some good response. Well, time flies when you're having fun or you're doing advocacy and we did a little of both. I want to thank you very much for joining me. I look forward to getting access to that recent article that's coming up. Oh, it's already done, and we can uh, we can talk music box. <laughs> Tell everybody <laughs> okay. again where they can contact you. James K K R A C H T at Gmail. So that's James middle initial K. Crot at gmail.com. Thank you so much for coming on, Jim. Thank you for having me. And to all listeners, please complete your census and please join me again next Sunday for another. Have a great week. Stay safe, wash your hands, and hug someone. <laughs> Have a good day. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email Celebration AC. That's the word Celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you, and let's brunch again next Sunday.